Hello and welcome to the Numlock Sunday edition. Uh, this is Walt Hickey. Uh, this week we've got a great interview with Surya Matsu and Aaron Sankin from The Markup. They wrote a really fascinating story along with some colleagues from Gizmodo all about predictive policing algorithms and some of the inherent biases and issues that come baked inside of them it's a really great interview you should absolutely check out the whole story uh as well as if you know you're keen on data download the stuff from github that they uploaded um this will be the last uh numlock sunday podcast of the year so thank you so much for listening as we've experimented with uh the format it's been going great hope to continue these into the new year and uh hey i hope that you really enjoyed this interview thanks for listening All right, Aaron and Surya, how's it going? Thank you so much for coming on. Great, my pleasure. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. You two wrote a really fantastic story over at The Markup, uh, and you're both data reporters over there, so you were really in the weeds on this one. Uh, it's all about you know crime prediction software and, and some of the issues inherent therein. Uh, can you all tell me a little bit about you know crime prediction in general and, and what like are police offices really using software to try to predict crimes before they happen? So I'll take, I'll take this one at the beginning. So um, our story was looking at a particular piece of crime prediction software called PredPol. And uh, the way that PredPol works is that it ingests crime report data, which is you know information that comes from if someone calls 911 saying, my car was broken into, or if uh, a police officer is driving around and they see someone in the act of breaking into a car and arrest them. So all of those crime, all of that crime report data um, then gets fed into an algorithm that is inside of this system that was devised by PredPol. And uh, from there, it uh, takes, it points on a map, uh, the locations where and when they think that crime uh, of this particular type is most likely to happen. And then from there, the uh, idea is that you can direct an officer while on patrol to go to that area and either by their sheer presence will dissuade criminals from uh, offending in that area or they will catch them in the act. And that is effectively how uh, this system that we looked at works. There are other predictive policing systems that are more person-based looking at, you know, who might uh, either commit a crime or become a victim of a crime. But the things that we were looking at is very tightly focused on this kind of location-based um, uh, type of prediction. Yeah, and y'all obtained just a wild set of data, something like 5.9 million crime predictions. What was it like to kind of work with that? And what format did they come in? Like, how'd you even embark on this? Sure, I can I can take that one. Um, so yeah, as you said, we had 5.9 million predictions that we used for this analysis, but actually the data that uh, our colleague on the story, uh, Dhruv Merotra, found on the internet was more was more than that. It was actually around 8 million predictions wow. across um, 70 different jurisdictions, um, including some really interesting ones, like we found some data from like Venezuela and Bahrain. Uh, which didn't make it into the story, but uh, but that was what he found. All of that data, by the way, is on the GitHub repository that goes with. I'm assuming people on who write this data stuff will, will know GitHub. Yeah. There's a link. There's a link um, in our methodology to the to the data if anyone wants to play with it. 
Um, but the data, the raw data itself came to us in the form of HTML files. Uh, and we essentially had to, and it was about, I forget how many gigabytes, but many, many gigabytes of this <laughs> raw HTML that we then had to parse uh, and write like basically parsers for to convert into spreadsheets that we could then use for analysis. Yeah, and so just kind of taking a step back to the final story in which you ended up finding, uh, you know, algorithms are oftentimes sold as impartial ways to understand the world, but, you know, your report really found that that's not the case at all, like that the human biases of the people who design the algorithms kind of make it into the final data. What, what, do you want to talk a little bit about yeah. kind of what you found? Sure. I mean, yeah, so what we basically found was that uh, across 38 jurisdictions that we looked at, um, the software disproportionately uh, had a, like disproportionately targeted low-income Black and Latino neighborhoods, and we define disproportionate here as compared to those jurisdictions overall. So you know, and like that, like obviously comes with caveats such as you know, crime doesn't isn't spread equally across a, a place. You know, it happens in specific locations and all of that. But what we found was that this underlying trend did exist in the in the data we had, and the reason it was important we thought to to do this analysis and present it this way is because to your, like, as you said, we wanted to just prove definitively that, you know, with real world data, like people can say that algorithms aren't racist because they're not looking at, looking at certain, you know, certain types of data, such as demographics. But we just, what we can, the point we were trying to make is um, that that will be reflected in the outcome of software. That's even if you don't include it, because as, as you said earlier, like the, the, the systemic bias is, kind of embedded within the input data that's going into these algorithms. And I think that's a really that's a really important point that Surya makes about the issues around the input data. Because you know, PredPol's algorithm, which they because the the founders of the company are academics, they had uh, disclosed uh, previously just the core of their algorithm in a in a uh, academic paper that they oh, had wow. pushed uh, published a, a number of years ago. It's you know their inputs are not uh, the inputs to this are have nothing to do not specifically mention race. They don't mention income. The inputs to the system are just the crime reports. And what they take away from a crime report is really just the type of crime, the time it happened, and the location. And that's it. So the issue here is essentially, you know, what is, you know, what is creating this kind of disproportionate um, uh, kind of skew uh, targeting these certain neighborhoods, it is a, it is based around like what is going in, what inputs are coming into those crime reports, and we can talk a little bit about like you know the issues of like you know input data affecting an algorithm, but you know you have things like you know fundamentally different rates of crime victimization in different neighborhoods. You have issues around as you know the Bureau of Justice Statistics has found repeatedly that you know. Uh, black and Latino and low income people tend to report crimes at um, higher rates than uh, white and um, higher income people. And also, you know, issues around feedback loops, where if there are, you know, officers are in a particular area, they're more likely to see crimes right. in the areas where they patrol. And then because of that, it could then, you know, they see those crimes, they identify the crimes, and then the crime report data then comes back from that uh, comes back into the system. So there's like a lot of like different things that are, you know, all working together here. But I think it's also important to say that like all of this stuff can happen in systems that are facially, you know, neutral about this. And I think, you know, a big takeaway for this story for me is that this system, PredPol, is intended to take away the opportunity to have individual biases of a police officer 
affect where they patrol because you know you could say yes you're a police you're concerned about individual police officers saying oh, i want to you know patrol the black neighborhood or the latino neighborhood and that's where i'm going to spend all my time and you know this system is intended to kind of circumvent that in a lot of ways but at the same time because the input data um is what it is you're then going to get you know potentially very similar results to you know if you just had um a police officer uh going on their own kind of biases and history and common sense and experience. Wow. Yeah, no, that feedback loop seems like a big problem because, again, it's if it's designed to subvert, you know, the desire to over-police different areas, but it's based on the fact that people are already over-policing specific areas, that seems like it's kind of a a key issue here. Yeah, and I think you know, like to a kind of caveat here, and, and Surya can go into this um, more because sure. he he's, he, uh, he did a lot of this data work. Is that fold, fundamentally what we were looking at is the algorithm, right? We were looking at these inputs and outputs because you know it is really it was really difficult for us to get a handle on how this was being used by individual police departments right and that was a question that we tasked to all of these departments that were in our analysis were like how did you use it and you know we got a lot of we had a lot of variances to some departments were like yeah we used it all the time and other departments were like we hardly use this at all even we were paying for it but at the same time like we had specifically asked all of the police departments you know had you found had you gotten direct like had this system directly led to arrests can you recall any specific time where Predpol said there was going to be a crime here and then you went to that area and then you made an arrest and none of them responded to that in the affirmative. And uh, whether that's because they, you know, it, they, it wasn't particularly useful for that or because that information never made it into their system, which I think is a big issue with this system where information about like whether or not a stop and arrest was a direct result of, you know, a prediction is, is generally from what I can understand is not making its way into kind of the legal system. But so it's really hard for us to know exactly how this is being used. And I think, therefore, it also makes it a little fuzzier in terms of the feedback loop question, because that was a concern that I think a lot of, you know, activists and critics and academics who have been studying um, and raising the alarm about place-based predictive policing systems like PredPol have worried about that. And I think that was something that we wanted to be able to answer. But because we didn't, we weren't able to get a lot of clarity on that, you know, I can't say, we can't say, you know, with any certainty exactly how big that um, feedback loop issue is, even though it's, it's certainly there. Right. And just, yeah, just to add to that, uh, in the data, that's, that's why we went with this analysis, this sort of disparate impact analysis at the end, because really what we're measuring is, um, is where, where these predictions took place and kind of who lives there. Right? Because that's the one yeah. thing we could be really specific about and precise and measure precisely. Um, so, so that's why that's kind of all of this stuff Aaron just said, I think, is a good explanation of why why we chose this analysis in the first place. Yeah. And one thing again, I really enjoy about the markups coverage in general is that, like, you do have the technical ability to kind of look at these algorithms and understand what's going on here. And so I would love to just like... It seems interesting that in this case, Aaron, to your point that, you know, oftentimes algorithms will have a way to kind of train themselves for accuracy, that they would find results about how efficacious they actually are and and try to get more like that. But it doesn't sound like that's happening here. Well, that that gets to a really kind of interesting thing we've seen both in the academic literature and just kind of through our own research as we've been working on, on this stuff is 
it's kind of like the way I kind of joke about it is like you it's you have to either, you either look at systemic inequality as a feature or a bug of society. Wow. Right. And I think like I think that that's basically the two views. If you look at we kind of look at it as a feature of society. Right. Mm-hmm. So when we're doing our analysis, we're saying we know this exists. Is it being reflected in this new system? Right. So the analysis we're doing is kind of treating systemic inequality as a feature. What Predpol, the company and the software they made is doing is kind of treating it like a bug. Uh-huh. They're saying that, oh, this is like a problem. We don't want to, if we don't look at it, it's probably not going to be there. It's not going to affect us because we're not looking at it. But, you know, it's not ours to fix. If it got fixed, the software would work really like it's super perfect and super like, unbiased. And I think fundamentally that's the difference. Like that's the that's the back and forth in in this conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. So so what you're getting at here is that like you view the systemic inequality component as like a fundamentally central feature of what the inputs are in this, either implicitly or not. Whereas exactly. if you're operating a police prediction algorithm, that's just like well, that's not really our department, and as a result, pretending it doesn't exist, which you know, does that cause the issues that you're kind of realizing in this? Yeah, exactly. Right? Because, because I mean, if you're a what do you do? Do you, like, do you, and, they, and Aaron can talk about this more, but he found a, a study in which they, they have, like, looked into this issue themselves. And they basically kind of came down to the fact that, yeah, it can perpetuate systemic biases, uh, but don't know what to do about that. <laughs> We're just going to leave it because it also can make it, quote unquote, less accurate if you if you start trying to, make they be less precise in where you target or look into the other uh, these other features to determine whether people are being exposed to these predictions i think something kind of like important here is essentially one of the things that we did is you know when the way the markup kind of operates with these sorts of investigations is we'll do our analysis and we'll put together like a whole methodology and then we'll send it out to um, the, the company or whoever we're investigating for an adversarial review, just like, Hey, what do you think about this whole method that, that we did? And then we had a whole bunch of questions and stuff. Um, and I think we asked pretty point blank of like, what do you make of these, like kind of, you know, this, these differences and like, this is who's getting targeted across, uh, all these jurisdictions. And their argument was really like, you know, we don't really have a problem with this because it's based on crime reports. So these are the neighborhoods that legitimately uh, need more policing. So it's not like, again, it's like, this is hap- if this is what the algorithm says, it's good because that's, you know, that it's based on this data. It's not based on human biases. And, you know, I think, you know, that is a, I feel like that's a question as to like a little like above my pay grade in terms of what's going on and like what is an appropriate level of policing in each of these communities because you know in certain parts of you know these jurisdictions i'm sure there are a lot of people who say yes i want more cops in my neighborhood and then there are other people who are saying i think the police let policing levels here are too high and i think kind of what at least i was really um excited to do about this story is allow those conversations to happen locally because they are not really ones that can happen at like, you know, the national 30,000 foot view, even yeah. though, you know, there is research that, you know, shows there are problems that happen around over policing and what happens to individuals and young people and communities when there are like a lot of negative interactions with police. But those decisions kind of need to be made at the individual and local level. And I think at least in my conversations with a lot of activists and 
uh, leaders in a lot of these cities, they didn't know this was being used. They hadn't heard about this stuff before. So it's really just needs to be part of that conversation to decide if it's something that needs to be appropriate or not. Because, you know, at the same time, there is, you know, there is research that does suggest that crime does, you know, map in that crime does coalesce into hotspots and sticking a cop and even just having a cop on a corner for a little bit of time can often decrease the reported levels of reported crime in a community. So it's like there are lots of different trade offs that are happening here. And I just think in order to for a community to really reckon with the levels and types of policing that it wants to have. Like it just, they just need a certain degree of information. And I think that is what, in a lot of ways, what we're trying to do with this, uh, the story. Yeah. It's interesting because again, I, when I was reading this story, again, I love this story. It's so in depth and folks should definitely check it out if they haven't read it already. But the thing that is like really interesting about it is I almost got the sense that describing it as a crime prediction software is kind of undermining what it's trying to do in the sense that like, it seems like it's less a weather forecast and more a climate forecast and misleading these two things is just kind of leading to disproportionate coverage. Again, you guys were so involved with the data. I would love your thoughts on, on that. I mean, I think I had heard it described as it's less a, you know, you know, it's less like it's less about finding um, the location uh, or the most likely location for future crimes. It's more about finding the location that someone will make a report about a crime in the future, if that makes sense. And those two things aren't necessarily the same. Um, and that's kind of what it's what's important to think about. But it's really like what this is predicting is incidents of people or police officers reporting crime to you know authorities which is different than people who are victimized by crime if that makes sense yeah i get that that, that does make sense yeah and so uh just kind of, again like the work that y'all do at the market is so great you guys have also covered things not just involving predictive policing you've covered facebook you've covered all sorts of different uh google youtube all this kind of thing and so i guess kind of in the course of covering the algorithms that you've covered have you kind of noticed any kind of reliable blind spots that folks who are designing these kind of keep on running into i think the biggest so one of the things we do in our in our analysis and our methodologies is we always we are always really explicit about the limitations of our analysis and what what we can and can't say and you know and how we were and how we had to limit what we were looking at and i think that is um something that i wish i would see more in like in like technology overall is this sort of like more rigorous you know the thing the thing the way i think about it is like you know how you have like uh, pen testing for for security uh, where yeah, yeah. people hire like like white hat hackers to come and test the security of their systems because they can build it as well as they want but till someone is kind of going to to really find all the the kind of leaky pipes you're not going to know and you need a similar kind of approach i think when looking at how the work we do really kind of comes down to a lot of data collection and cleaning like you know with this story it was 5.9 million records, but we had to like geocode each one of those lat longs, connect it to census data. Like there was just so do a FOIA request for like to over a hundred, like uh, over a hundred FOIA requests to join the data to actually be able to even build like the data sets we needed to do an analysis to answer a question. And I think like that's the kind of work I hope in the future, like companies start doing more and more of uh, around the products they're putting out into the world. And you know, like 
that there could be a variety of ways in which that happens. Like you could like talk to advocates and experts and people who like work with vulnerable communities who are the most likely to be harmed by these tools to see what it looks like on the ground. And um, I don't see that happening as much as I would like it to. And I'm hoping that the work we do at the markup kind of raises that conversation around what it looks like to do like kind of internal adversarial testing of how, how your technology influences society. That makes me think about, um, there was a, a story that came out a few months ago, and it was probably, I don't know, the thing this year that a tech company did that I just really appreciated the most. And it was a report that came out of Twitter. And their report was basically that they had studied it and they found that basically everywhere that Twitter operates, it is amplifying right-wing content more so than amplifying kind of centrist or left-wing content. And the, the key here is that they say, we do not know why this is happening. We looked at this and we this is a real thing. We have studied this. This is a systematic bias in our system, but we cannot figure out like what is the core reason that this is happening across so many countries all over the world. And I thought that was just like such an important and like for an important way to do that in a couple ways. And I think one, because, you know, they are admitting there's like this big gap in their knowledge and they're admitting that this thing is a process, but also like there's a certain degree of transparency in saying we are studying this and looking into it and we think it's important and we would like to know more, but we're not quite there yet. And I think that is something that, you know, that the markup tries to embody as well in our work of saying these are the limits to our knowledge in terms of the research and analyses and reporting that we've done. And I really liked seeing that from uh, from like a big tech company that deals in algorithms like that. And it also made me think about how rare that sort of statement and sentiment is among kind of like Twitter's peers and, you know, big tech algorithmic space. That's really insightful. I, I love that observation that, again, it just for whatever reason, whether it's just the, the Silicon Valley culture or even just like, you know, how people kind of understand and reconcile what things that they've built with the impacts of the things that they've built. But there really is a lack of like technological humility from a lot of different circles on this that you guys very, very well kind of illustrate in your own work. I really like that term, technological humility. I, I'm definitely going to use it in the Steal future. It. It's yours. It's yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that is what we're like. That is what we're after here. Like you know, like one thing I always I say at, at work is that you know we're kind of like the Mister Rogers of data. <laughs> you know, like we want to tell you that like we want to be honest and treat you like like humans and who like understand nuance and can like understand like a detail, detailed complicated thing where it's not like just finger pointing and saying everything is bad. We're trying to show you that like things are complicated. Here's the trade-off. Here's how every, here's what we can say. Here's what we can't say. And I think like if you can do that with nuance and specificity and really precisely define the problem, even if you can't solve it, it gives people a little more agency on how they want to deal and interact with it. And I think that's a big part of what our job is here is to like just shine a light and like give you the nuance and detail so you can understand like how to think about the system. Yeah, that, that's great. I love that. Uh, and again, so, you know, y'all at the markup have been at this for a while. It's, you know, the reports that you come out with are really terrific. I suppose, like, in this kind of specific case, you know, there's a couple of stakeholders involved, right? There's the different municipalities and the cities. I guess, like, how how has the reaction been? And, and, and how do you kind of hope people use what you found on their own little municipal basis? 
So I think it's still a little early to get a sense of the, the reaction post-publication, but really one of the things that I found, I found really interesting is once we had conducted and kind of finished and locked down our analysis, we went to all of the departments that were included in it. And, you know, Surya had made these really great data sheets, which are available on our GitHub, that break down the uh, targeting for each city. And we asked them like a whole, so we provided these things to each of the departments and we asked them a whole bunch of questions about, you know, their own, their own use of this system. And we got, I think about like 15 or so departments um, that to, to respond to us, most of those were ones that had used this system at one point and then um, uh, stopped. But one of the, but the thing that struck me was this kind of consistent refrain from a lot of departments that had used Predpol and then stopped was that they were like, you know, this, they felt that it wasn't telling them anything they didn't already know, mm. which kind of makes a lot of sense because yeah. a lot of these are, you know, smaller or mid-sized cities. So you have like not a huge jurisdiction and you have police officers often who have been working on these, in these beats for years, if not decades. And they're like, yes, I know where to go, where there are going to be car break-ins. I know generally where the muggings happen because they are there in these communities. And I think that struck me as something that was really interesting because one, it, you know, suggests like, is this a really great purchase or product uh, for, for these departments to be making at all? But also at the same time, if we are finding that these predictions, which are based on the crime report data, are already are so closely lining up with the preconceived notions of the individual police officers, you know, is it is this whole system just replicating or reinforcing the same sorts of biases that have already been in there that, you know, that could be problem that could end up being um, fairly uh, problematic. So I think that to me was something that I found uh, particularly interesting and in interfacing with um, with all of these departments. And it makes me think also of, there's uh, some really excellent work by a, a University of Texas sociologist uh, named Sarah Brain, and she had done work at, UC, uh, at the LAPD looking at their uses of technologies. And one of the insights that she had seen is that uh, it, it, to her, it kind of like, in a sense, functions as almost a de-skilling of the, of like police work where it's like you have you know you have police officers who feel like they have all of this knowledge and suddenly they're taking directions on where to go from a computer and it's like right. well we already kind of know this um so i thought that was i thought that's something that was really interesting and kind of interfacing of how this stuff is working on the ground in that it didn't seem to be telling at least any of the departments I had seen, like at a spoken to about this at a kind of large level, anything that was like particularly, um, particularly surprising to them. Like one example is there was a department, they were like, yes, we had a, we had a car break in at an area where, a, where Predpol had made a car break in location, but we already knew that there were a rash of cars that were getting broken into there. And the car that broken into was a bait car that we had stuck there like <laughs> a while earlier. So like, you can't credit it to that. If that, if that makes sense. Totally. I almost wonder like, where's the demand for this kind of software? It doesn't sound like it's necessarily coming from the rank and file of the police departments. Like it's it, who, who I guess is the customer here really. Well, I think a lot of this kind of comes back to the the whole kind of CompStat era, yeah. which started in like the NYPD in the in the '90s, and a lot of that is you know using a lot of data to map crime locations. But I think a really important and I think maybe underrated element of that entire movement is kind of accountability 
is that it gives, you know, the police chiefs um, this ability to then, you know, take their like captains and other leadership to say, hey, you're in charge of this division or you're in charge of this area. How come there are so many muggings right here? What are you going to do about it to stop this from happening in the future? And, you know, for my, you know, kind of conversations with people in the field, like that was a pretty fundamental shift in how policing uh, was conceived. So this whole kind of predictive policing model is kind of taking that to the next step of saying, you know, what can we do to be proactive about preventing crime? And, you know, yes, there are a lot of things you could do to be proactive about preventing crime. But a lot of those things are like giving people social services and, you know, (laughs) getting people jobs and like doing all of these like gigantic, you know, social kind of social engineering, like social services things. And you're a police chief in a small or medium sized city. You do not have the budget to do all of those things. And it's probably not your mission. But, you know, you can spend a, you know. $20,000, $30,000 $30,000 a year on this system that will allow you to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm being proactive, um, which I think is, is is at least part of the reason that this stuff is happening. And also at the same time, I don't know, like at least off the top, it's probably for, you know, the kind of techier people in law enforcement, it's probably kind of a cool thing to be like, hey, there's this computer system that can give me secret insight into how to do this better. Let's give it a shot. Got it. Yeah. Well, listen, Great story. It, the story is at the markup. It's called Crime Prediction Software. Promise to be free of biases. New data shows it perpetuates them. You guys also had a really wonderful post explaining exactly how you pulled this off, and it is on GitHub. I guess just kind of wrap it up. Where can folks find you, and where can folks uh, find the work? So um, you can find us on Twitter. On my, my, my I'm Surya Matu. Um, the markup.org is where we publish all our work. Uh, I'll I'll plug one more thing, which is that in if you're interested in the data and want to see how it what it looked like for different cities um you can if you go to the bottom we've actually published all those data sheets aaron mentioned with maps to show what these predictions actually look like for the, diff- the 38 different jurisdictions so definitely play around with that if you're interested that's in cool data. yeah and i uh, also am published at uh the markup.org you can find me on twitter at a sankin and also i do want to plug that this story was a uh published in partnership with the uh technology news site gizmodo and you can also uh read it Uh, and additional materials on their site as well. All right, wonderful. Hey, thanks for coming on, folks. Thanks for having us. Thanks again to Aaron and Surya for coming on. Be sure to check out this story and any others coming out of the markup. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this, be sure to throw us a review. Uh, And hey, uh, thank you for subscribing, and thank you for listening. 